A couple of years ago, GLAAD started doing this report called The State of HIV Stigma. And one of the stats that really stuck with me in the most recent one was about transmission. You know, as we know, if you're living with HIV and taking proper medication, you cannot transmit the virus. Full stop. But for those who were surveyed, only 42% of people knew that, or believed it. 42%. And to be clear, I don't think it's their fault for not knowing this. For so long, HIV has only been presented in the media as a death sentence. A death sentence only. And so these great strides that we've made in terms of the science and healthcare, they're not widely known or publicized, especially outside of the queer community. This is one of the things that I think Three Months, the new film from Jared Frieder, helps to correct. It tells a modern HIV story, presenting HIV the way it looks today with all the advances we've made. You can live a long and healthy life with HIV, and it's past time to see that reflected on screen in pop culture. So Jared Frieder is here today to talk about his movie Three Months, which he wrote and directed. Three Months stars Troy Sivan and comes out on February 23rd on Paramount+. Plus. So set your calendars, that's February 23rd. And until then, please enjoy this conversation with Jared Frieder. I want to begin by talking about the portrayal of HIV. You know, looking at the on-screen representations of HIV that we've seen, the vast majority are set in the past, in the 80s and 90s. And that's an issue because the extraordinary medical advances that have occurred, I would argue, have not been reflected on screen in any significant way. So what made you want to tell a modern HIV story and specifically anchor it in young people? These are two 18-year-olds. Yeah, I mean, for, for just that reason, you know, I grew up being in love with narratives and stories about queer people living with HIV from Angels in America to Rent, even something like Philadelphia, you know, like these are movies that that I saw myself in, but very few people had continued that conversation into the modern era where when you have access to medical care, HIV is no longer a death sentence and people live long lives, they fall in love, they pursue their dreams. And now we have to really have a hard discussion about the stigma and the shame around the disease, which is sort of another thing that I wanted to throw into the conversation and keep having dialogues about. And growing up where we grew up in Florida, like in the public school system, I was not educated in the modern state of what people living with HIV had to deal with and how we had progressed so much medically in terms of technology and pharmaceuticals. And I had to unlearn that and reteach myself how it is today. And I wanted to create a movie that could affect young people for young people that helps them do that. Right, because this helps to refocus HIV in the present. As you were saying, when we learned about HIV, we learned about it as part of history only. And I think it wasn't until like adulthood, frankly, for me, that I realized that I had this like subconscious perception that HIV wasn't something I needed to worry about. Not at all. And like, I remember going through that experience in college where, you know, they had a gay men's health center on campus at Columbia and 
I was able to meet with doctors and sort of learn just through my own personal experiences and doctor's appointments. And again, it was something that I, that I didn't know that now, you know, my evolved perspective as a gay man in my thirties living in Los Angeles in the year of our Lord, 2022, like those things are obvious. And this is what it means to be like alive and like a sexually active gay man. And in, in an era where again, either, you know, you don't have HIV, you take a pill a day prep. You have HIV, you take a pill a day and it keeps you undetectable. And it's like, we all take a pill a day and live long, happy lives. So it's like, what's what's the difference? And for me, it's both access to that medicine, which is a huge problem in this country. Like we say that it's not a death sentence, but there are people that do not have access to healthcare. And that's a serious health hazard, both here and also like abroad, you know, and developing countries, they still don't have the access that we have. So it is a problem there. But beyond that, it's like, we it's there's so much shame and it's, it's hard to confront it and stare it down. And the reason I like doing it in the form of this movie is because it's like a comedy and it's vibrant and it's boisterous and joyful. So it makes it makes it a lot more accessible, hopefully, to people to understanding the messaging that I'm trying to get across. And with that shame too, Troy Savon's character in the movie, he has this like potential exposure. He's waiting the three months to get the test results back. Or you know what, I should say too that I call this a modern HIV story. That's not exactly accurate because it's set in 2011 yes. and things have even changed since then. No, it's a good point. It's like the thing about 2011 that really intrigued me, first of all, like this is a really personal story and that's when like we were coming of age and I wanted to capture that moment in time. It was also that moment that after HIV was a death sentence, but before PrEP, which I think is a really interesting place to set a story like this in. And in 2011, people who were living with HIV were able to become undetectable yes. with access to healthcare. Yes. However, we didn't have that terminology. And so they were, it was that window of like people were undetectable, but we didn't know what that meant. A hundred percent. And it was the phase in my own life where I had to evolve and get myself educated. And Caleb goes through the same experience played by the incredible Troy Savon, you know, of where he's learning about the reality of what his life would be like while also being forced to confront the shame that he has felt. And so you said it's like the same experience you had. This is inspired by an event in your life, but it's very much not your story. Do you mind explaining to people like what happened and like what did inspire it? Yeah. So I think the first thing that inspired it in a general sense is my goal with this was like, creating a movie and telling a story that I needed when I was growing up as a gay kid who was struggling with shame. Like we don't get many gay movies still, but beyond that, like I had an experience going through college where a condom broke and I had to wait. And it's an experience that literally every single friend I've ever had has gone through, like we all do and figuring out testing and exposure windows. And I was like, oh my God, will straight people get it? Like they don't often get tested. It's so foreign to them. And then the COVID pandemic happened. And now all I talk about with my mother is, okay, I was exposed on Saturday, but now before it was four days and two days, but up to 12 days and 14 days. And now that vernacular and the vocabulary has permeated global culture culture and is not just in queer culture. And it's this really unfortunate experience of the COVID pandemic has sort of made this even more universal and relevant than I, I thought. And so Caleb in the movie, he gets this initial news and then he shares it with his best friend. He starts meeting other people with HIV, which was this kind of really lovely message of like, hey, you don't have to go through this alone. Yes. So for you, when you had your own three month wait, who did you tell or did you share it with anybody? My parents. Really? I called them the next day. 
and they flew to New York and they put me up in a hotel with them and they just like clutched me until, you know, it was over and we're so compassionate and amazing. I mean, you know, I have the best parents that have ever existed in planet earth. And it's so funny. I, I really want to make it clear <laughs> in a lot of this stuff when I talk about the movie that like the parent, Caleb's parents are not my parents. The stuff that Caleb goes through with, you know, the Orthodox Judaism in his life and with his mom is based on just like people I knew growing up and in college who didn't have the family situation that I had and weren't as lucky as I was. But yeah, my parents, my roommates, my friends, it was like finding that support system of the people who will be there for you no matter what and like clinging to them like hell, which I also think is a part of growing up both as a queer person, but as any person, just like finding your tribe and letting them support you when things get tough, you know? Oh, and so that required you to have a conversation with your parents about being sexually active. Yeah. Which they like knew there's this amazing story where like my first college boyfriend, when I brought him home like freshman year and we like went on a vacation and we were driving from my parents' house. We stayed the night before on vacation. We forgot our condoms, like our bag of condoms in, in my room. And I'm driving down Zurich street. All of a sudden I see my mom chasing down the car holding this bag of condoms, just like waving them like, Jerry, wait, you forgot your protection. And I was just like, this is perfect. Wait, that's so progressive and nice. Yeah, they're the best. Okay, well, while I'm asking a question about sex, I don't like when movies pan away from queer people having sex because we don't do that with straight people. But when it comes to like teenagers hooking up, it is different there. I don't need to see high schoolers like bumping and grinding. How did you think about how you wanted to portray like teenage sex lives on screen? You know, that is a sequence in the film that I am most proud of. We worked really fucking hard on nailing the tone of that scene and the way that we express queer intimacy on camera. And what was important for me, first of all, they're going through a situation where they don't know their HIV status. So I didn't want to show an exchanging of fluids because I wanted to be responsible. I'm also a big fan of, especially for queer people, but for everyone, but for especially for queer people, sex is how you define it. Like it's not something that is prescriptive that you need to follow along some standard or some idea of what sex should be, whether it's penetrative or anal or whatever it is that like sex is a physical intimacy. It's like that element is, is important. So when Caleb says define sex, that was a really purposeful way to, for him to put how they could be, you know, intimate with one another physically. But I also wanted to lean into the like, yeah, they're like still horny gay teens. And so the button of the scene where they're like masturbating is like, not something you would normally see maybe in a teen movie, but it felt like it worked and was still accessible because it was in tone. It was like, hopefully romantic, hopefully humorous and relatable. So it was a very choreographed moment of the film. Totally. And the movie portrays these complicated views of sexuality and family. The character, he has zero shame around his queerness, but that doesn't translate to the mother fully accepting his queerness. And that's complicated. Exactly. It's very complicated. It's like, you know, you're okay with it because you are okay with it. Or are you pretending to be okay with it completely because you want to fake it till you make it? But you can't forget that deep down behind the humor and behind the rebelliousness and the, you know, the charm, there is a part of him that still is imbued with the tiny seed of shame that his mom put in his brain. It never really goes away. 
it just doesn't. And like, you learn how to deal with it and you learn how to shame to me is like grief where it's like the acceptance comes and the hole in you gets smaller, but like, it's always there. I find that the same things that I felt shame about and was afraid of at the age of 12 are the exact same things that I'm afraid of and feel shame about now. I just know that there's a bigger world. And like, I know that sometimes because I feel something, it doesn't mean that it's true. What are those things you feel ashamed about? Are you saying like queerness or other things? Oh my God. No, 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 no. Other things, just insecurities, not being perfect, not meeting the best little boy in the world standards that I've set for myself, body issues, being a gay man and being an overweight kid, you know, all those same things that used to haunt me, haunt me still, Just but just like Caleb, I deal with them with humor and surrounding myself by an incredible support system and knowing that like I'm no one is ever perfect. No one needs to be perfect. And it is those differences that eventually become your superpower that make you interesting and special and valuable. And that was important for me to like show through Caleb and Troy's performance. In the support group scene, they talk about being undetectable, which as we know means you cannot transmit the virus if you're living with HIV. And that stood out to me because it's one of the first times I've seen in pop culture where they reference that. I'm sure there's examples, I just have not seen them. I bring it up because we've done such a great job in the LGBTQ community of talking about U equals U, and we've not done a good job outside the community. So they kind of have that AIDS equals a death sentence mindset. And the mom in the movie has that, right? She 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 does not have that distinction when like her son tells her. I bring that up because I was surprised that I like felt for her in that moment because it wasn't really her fault because she doesn't know what she doesn't know. Oh my God, I literally love that you brought that up. I, I said earlier today that she, I don't even view, I mean, she is the antagonist, but like, I don't think she's the villain of the story because I think she's deeply afraid. I think she's surrounded by fear and a lack of education and she loves her son, but she feels trapped and she doesn't know how to accept him or educate herself to know. And that was something that really came about because of Amy's performance and working with Amy on set. Amy Landecker. Amy Landecker, who plays his mom, who is so gifted and I'm so grateful that she took this role, which is like, could be viewed as a challenging role. You know, she's not the most likable character, but it's the pivotal, important sequence in the film where everything sort of hinges. It's like the climax, the end of act two, low moment. And she humanized her. And she, of course, she's still like, sucks. And she's not operating from a place of love or compassion or knowledge, but she's heartbroken. And you feel, I really wanted people to feel that conflict in her. And that mother, as we said, is played by Amy Landecker. The lead is played by Troye Sivan, global superstar Troye Sivan. There's also Ellen Burstyn, Judy Greer, Louis Gossett Jr. My question is, how does somebody get all of these big ass names in their first film? The answer is I still might be dreaming and I'm waiting to wake up. A part of it is dumb luck. A part of it is I had the literal best producers on the planet, Dan DeBecky and Laura Alamedine of the Allegiance Theater, who's made films like Juno and Jennifer's Body and Up in the Air and just are legends. And something that I was really blessed with is access in order to reach these people. And not everybody does. And so I feel very privileged to have had that. And the rest of it was the script really connected with these people. Like 
we sent the script to Troy and he flipped out for it. And within a week had like signed on, like once he had finally read it, same for Ellen, same for Lou, Judy Greer flew out two days as the pandemic was crumbling on us in March, 2020. And was basically like, I was sent the script. I started it at night. I stayed up half the night reading it, couldn't put it down. And I just had to be a part of it. So I was just like very lucky that people responded to the scripts in the right place at the right time. Like so much of it is also just like sheer stupid luck, you know? The script had been floating around Hollywood for a while. It was on the blacklist. What, what year was this? 2014. 2014. The blacklist was created by Franken Leonard. Can you just give like a quick summation for people listening about like what, what it is, what it does? So the blacklist is described as a list of the best unproduced screenplays in Hollywood. And what it can do for a writer and a story is pretty extraordinary. Franklin Leonard, who is the best, I adore him. He's done so much for me, just creates a platform for people to get exposure for their work, you know? And so this was 2014. People started to hear about it. Like, you wanted to make this movie. At one point, it was going to be adapted for a TV show, then being adapted for a movie. I guess, like, my, my like question is, like, sounds dumb, but it's like, is it just, like, pure luck that it even happened at all? Yes. To tell a queer story with a queer protagonist in this town is literally impossible. It is pushing the largest boulder ever invented up the steepest hill ever seen. Wait, that th that is fascinating because I think that goes against like everything we think about Hollywood. I think we think Will and Grace happen and like now everything's fine, but it's you're st saying it's still challenging as hell. Girl, there are stories that I cannot share on this public podcast, but we'll tell you another time about what it is like and the things I have heard from studios, from networks, from executives about trying to tell stories with a queer protagonist. Give us one example. There was a, and this is like such a mild example, but I I had developed a show at a network that was controlled by a really powerful studio. And the studio head at the time said, and this is like code, right? After a while, you learn to read between the lines because no one's like, we're not doing gay stories anymore. Sorry. But he was basically like, there's not a relatability to sell the show internationally. And I was like, okay, uh-huh. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Cool. I'm so glad you brought up this international example, because that's something I think about all the time, which is that China will literally not allow movies to premiere in their country if there is like a trans character, right? They don't want gay storylines. And so that is in the back of these Hollywood executives' minds. Not just is it going to get a GLAAD award, but is it going to get like a two billion person audience in Asia? Absolutely. And the thing that I also want to press upon people that I don't think people know is that like, and this is television, like I've mostly worked in television. Obviously, this is the first thing I've gotten made and it's a film, but TV has been my bread and butter for the last decade. When you sell a show to a network, right? If I sell a show with like a queer protagonist, the people who are buying it from me are development executives that work at that network who are usually younger, pro progressive, gotten to this business because they're excited to tell new, interesting and diverse stories. And for the amount that they pay you for to write a writer to write a pilot, which is not a lot, you know, networks are willing to do that a lot of times because they like to have diverse development projects. But in order to greenlight it to a series, which costs millions and millions and millions of dollars compared to hundreds of thousands of dollars, you have to get the head of these networks, the boards, the companies who are so ingrained in the patriarchal systems of major corporate America that oftentimes they love to put 
queer protagonist stories into development, but they don't often get them made. And when these are made, there's also like consolations. Like you have to like maybe have a straight actor playing the role or maybe you have to give the gay character a straight best friend because like, you know, gays never have gay friends. <laughs> I mean, that was the craziest thing to me in the world. I got that note once that I should have made Dara played by Brienne Chu, just like a straight girl. So it was like a more Will and Grace dynamic. And I was literally like, if you think that this is a movie where I'm going to like make concessions, there, there's no concessions I can make to make this palatable for the imaginary patriarchal world that you want this to operate in. This has to be honest and authentic no matter what. And I'm very grateful to MTV and Paramount for allowing me to do that. And because I, I really didn't have to make concessions. That's amazing. Now, a few times you've mentioned growing up in Florida. So for people listening, you and I, we grew up just a couple houses down from each other. And this was until my family moved away to North Carolina when I was six. You know, if we'd stayed in Florida, you and I, it could have been like that meme that I'm obsessed with. It's like the graffiti on the wall and it says, teen fags run this hood. <laughs> like that could have been us. Yeah, when I was explaining to someone our relationship before coming on the pod, I was basically like, it's so weird because like Jeff grew up on my street. Our moms are best friends. We went on like every family vacation together growing up. And then when I was in elementary school, like we had just started elementary school and you guys moved away for your dad's job. And we like missed the period of our lives when we were like in turmoil, coming of age and realizing that we were gah, gah, gay. And then like reconnected as adults in LA when we both moved here to like work in entertainment. And it's really funny and bizarre. And like you talking about like growing up in high school and being like out-ish, like out enough, let's say, there's this like through the looking glass quality, I feel like, because I'm like, oh my God, like if I'd stayed in Florida, like would I feel comfortable coming out in high school? But it's like a very like rosy, like gay utopia of you only. It's like, there's no trauma. No, there's so much trauma. It was so hard. It sucked. I was so depressed. Like actual depression or like the colloquial disruption? No, 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 no. I'm someone who struggled with mental health since I was very, very young and am on antidepressants and have been for a really long time and in and out of therapy for forever. So no, like actual literal, like chemical depression triggered by trauma, right? Triggered by having to grow up in a straight Floridian world as like a gay kid and how difficult that was and how I tried to be perfect Literally the shame monologue that Esta gives in support group where he's like, I try to be perfect in every way because I'm scared what will happen if people find out. That's me. Like I tried to be perfect in every way because I felt such an intense shame because I knew I was different in this way that I couldn't control. It was really, 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 really not easy, but it made me a better, stronger person. It made me someone who now knows how to talk and communicate about emotions and conflict I had to find Brene Brown, to be honest, who is my Jesus, and learn how to be vulnerable and learn how to combat shame and live wholeheartedly. And it, it was definitely not easy. I mean, I can't imagine North Carolina was easy at all. If anything, it had to be harder. I remember visiting you and being like, okay, this looks interesting. That's because you were like in a forest and like freaking out about bugs. Oh my God. To this day, I, I, I have a hard time watching certain seasons of The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills when Yolanda has Lyme disease because I am taken back to that forest in North Carolina where I was crying and screaming the entire hike because I thought I was going to get bitten by, by a tick. That's how gay I was as a child, everyone, by the way. 
You know what though? I don't. I don't know that I that registered to me as like this guy's gay. <laughs> However, I do remember like two specific moments about you. I don't know if I ever told you this, but I was like on Facebook one day, and I saw that you'd flat ironed your hair. It was very like the Adam Lambert, like you know, like the flat iron. And I was like, oh, that's a homosexual haircut. Before Adam Lambert, I it, my flat iron experience pre. No one can see now because I'm buzzed, but also this podcast, so no one can see. But um, I have like super, super, super curly hair. My mom has super curly hair. Hers has always been prettier than mine. It's always been a struggle. It's always something that's made me feel like weird and different. But I was also like super warped tour 2004 emo saves the day fallout boy sort of a vibe when i was like younger and so like the flat iron was like inspired by like you know being a poster child for the hot topic and snap bracelets but yeah definitely gay i mean i was obsessed with my hair I remember the hair, and I also remember my mom bringing me to your house once. I think it was after we moved away, and sitting on your family's piano was like the wicked songbook. You know, listen, sometimes as children, we have to defy gravity, <laughs> and that's what I was doing. I mean, I was obsessed with musical theater. I just, I would spend so many summers in New York because my parents are Brooklyn Jews who like moved to Florida and then had my generation, but we are like historically... Brooklyn Jews. And I remember going to New York and being in musical theater and feeling the energy and seeing the people and not knowing, not having the vocabulary to know that I was queer yet. And just being like, something about me feels really at home here. And so I like fell in love with musicals and of course, Wicked, because that was the musical when we were like younger coming up and like discovering ourselves. Yes. But, but enough of that though. I, before I let you go, I have one more question about the movie. It's about the ending. I think I can phrase it in a way that does not spoil anything, okay. but uh, just in case, spoiler alert, people can fast forward like 30 seconds if they want. Do that now. But I want to talk about it because I thought it was so smart and clever. You did not tie this character's fairy tale happy ending to a negative or positive HIV diagnosis. And I love the message of that. Was that something that you found in like the 10 year period of making and rewriting this thing? Or did you know that that was the ending from day one? After I sort of came up with this idea for the story and free wrote the first 10 pages, it was the first thing I knew definitively about that. This was like back in 2013. I was like, this is how it has to end because it's about the fact that he's gonna be okay no matter what. And I feel like that drives that home more than anything. And again, what I want to do is like, listen, no one ever gets anything 100% right when it comes to telling stories about sensitive topic topics or people with specific identities. And we get so few opportunities to do that, that there's like a pressure that you don't want to upset anyone. You want to represent everyone correctly and respectfully. And, yeah. you know, you feel this huge responsibility because there aren't a lot of opportunities for, for these types of movies. You want to get it right. And so I realized at a certain point that I had to just tell the most honest story for me and just be excited to continue conversations and start dialogues so that, you know, people could talk about things that I thought were important and that needed to be talked about more. I love that. I think that's a good place to end it too. This was so fun, Jack! Can you tell I didn't see the movie? I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> could you imagine? You're like, wow, I really just winged that on the fly. <laughs> And that was my dear friend, Jared Frieder. His film, Three Months, comes out on February 23rd on Paramount+. Plus. That's February 23rd. 
if you enjoyed this conversation with Jared, please tell your friends on social media. When you tweet about us or post on Instagram or Facebook, those things really do help us find new listeners. And to be completely honest, that helps us to be able to continue making our show. So thank you so much to everyone who does that. It really does help to sustain us. We're brought to you by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD. I'm Jeffrey Masters. I will see you next week. Bye.